0: Hello, friend. Welcome to Mr. Rewatch, your Mr. Robot recap podcast brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Aaron. And I'm Devlin. And today we are joined by a, a very special guest as part of our quarantine content series. Can we ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi there.
1: My name is Ashley Atkinson.
0: And folks listening to this podcast will probably know Ashley best uh, from her portrayal of Janice.
1: <laughs> I feel like there was just a collective groan across your entire <laughs> listenership. People are like, "Ah, oh, come on. This girl? God. <laughs>
0: Well, actually, I was—we have had only villains on the show. Fantastic! If I think about it, so we've had Martin Wallström, we had Stephen Lynn, who's Hamburger Man, uh-huh. and now you. I love that you had Hamburger Man.
1: Stephen is a real delight too. Yeah. Oh, of course. Uh, I think that you have to have a certain amount of uh, self-awareness to play a, ro- a Mr. Robot villain, and really like. If you want to get down to it, almost every character has villainous aspects, you know? Like, even Elliot's behavior to certain people is pretty dastardly, you know? So, the, the lines between villain and hero on that show blur quite a bit, I think.
2: Yeah, I think that's true, especially because I find it hard to think of hamburger man as a villain but i guess strictly speaking you could say that um especially in um season four which is when um janice was introduced i think that we did see some of that kind of scary behavior from elliot and um it was really kind of one of the more um kind of challenging seasons of mr Robot, i would say so Your character joins um, in season four, kind of like a a later addition to the show. But I think that they had a a really, really big and quickly profound impact. And I think, um, contrary to what you're saying, our our audience has always found um, this to be like a very compelling character. So I was wondering what what you thought um, was so compelling about Janice that made them be so impactful in such a short amount of time.
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, uh, I certainly... Felt that I was stepping into enormous shoes uh, with Bobby having played Irving in season three. And in, because I was a fan of Mr. Robot long before I was uh, a part of Mr. Robot. And I remember loving Irving so much and literally in the scene in episode one where i'm outside with uh with dom and you find out sort of the nature the real nature of janice um it says in the script in like bolded italicized letters oh my god Janice is the new Irving. <laughs> and, <I'm> like, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh no! We'd, don't don't say that. That's terrifying. Like I can't be the new Irving Irving. like how how could there ever be another Irving? It's like the most singularly bizarre, wonderful dark army villain. All the dark army villains are so uh, strange and, and unique in the, you know, I, I just, I was like, well, Janice could Janice can't be the new Irving. Janice is just going to have to be Janice. (laughs) And I felt really strongly about that, but um, I mean, they give me the best, the best entrance into that show just like I get mentioned, right, as like the friend from church to a paranoid, uh, sketched-out dom who is hardly listening to a word her mom says, right? And then the next thing you know, I'm at the table being weird and shy. And then within minutes... I get to flip it entirely on its head, which is great because, right, like Janice knows that she gets to do that. She's sitting there the entire meal being like, This woman thinks she's in charge of me. And the actual opposite is true. And she just gets to like toy with her and wait until the moment she decides that she's gonna let the cat out of the bag. It's delicious, like I, I was obsessed with it the second I read that scene. I was like, oh, oh, this is amazing. Uh, and she's so joyful in a really messed up way, you know? Like she's wreaking havoc and she loves it.
2: I, I know that scene you're talking about because I think that as an audience member, that was kind of just um, a really jaw-dropping moment that had some really great writing and some really great execution. Thanks. And it kind of went to show us what was going to be in store for the rest of the season.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad that's what that was because I hoped that's what that would be, you know, just like people. I mean, it was jaw-dropping enough doing it in a table read, much less like actually watching it with people, you know. My husband lost his mind. He he's a big fan of the show, as was I and as I am still uh, obviously. But he wouldn't let me tell him anything about the show at all. About about my character, any spoilers from season 4, I just couldn't say anything to him about it. And so I got to the payoff for that was I got to sit with him every week and watch him experience it. Which was really fun.
2: That must have been fun. But I can't imagine trying to um, avoid spoilers like that. It would just be so tantalizing. I would be begging to hear what would be coming next.
1: I mean, come on, right? Like, I had to go. Uh, We're real spoilery on this show, right? We can talk spoilers. Yes. Yes. Do we need to say spoilers, spoilers, spoilers? Yeah, I had to get shot in the head for like eight hours. And then come home and not show him any of the photos or tell him anything. I just one day had to be like, well, okay, so my job is done. I'm done. I don't get to go back anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane. I don't even know how we did it. It's insane. I don't know either,
0: because sometimes our producer, Dave, would watch the show the day after us, and it was hard enough to keep that for one day.
1: <laughs> for oh, one yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah, Um, for sure. One of the things that's great, and you talked about Janice having this inside knowledge that the audience doesn't have. And I think, I mean, she's a character where you wonder what's happening in her brain. Except I think you really know that Janice loves her work. And so I hypothetically have wondered, now, do you think the Dark Army found her? Or do you think she found her way to the Dark Army? I
1: think... And this is truly what I think. And this is an intersection, weirdly, of what I know about the character of White Rose and what I know about the person of B.D. Wong inhabiting the character of White Rose. I really love B.D. He's, he's become a very good friend of mine. I didn't know, of course I knew of him, but I we didn't know each other personally before the show began. And we have really started to inhabit this delightful sort of like, boss, uh, employee, like, simpatico relationship, he and I, we really enjoyed each other. Um, I think White Rose keeps tabs on messed up kids, basically. I think that, um, you know, uh, Janice talks about uh, how there were sort of anomalies in her behavior that made her parents concerned and that they went and had her tested, she says multiple times. Um, so like they didn't believe, which means they didn't believe the first test. They were like, uh, no, let's check her again. Um, and that they were surprised to find her completely normal. I think those anomalies are behavioral issues that white rose track. And I do think that people like Irving and people like Janice are found by the Dark Army and are given opportunities with, I'm sure, an enormous amount of financial benefit, right? Because, like, Irving gets to go off and write a novel, right? Like, you know, you can retire and be super comfortable um, after a career in the in the Dark Army, um, so I think it's something about Janice already being that person, and uh, she was sort of headhunted by White Rose and the Dark Army. Because I also think Dark Army doesn't let anyone find them. You know what I mean? Like I don't. I think if they don't want to be found, they are not found. So Janice would have been the kind of young person maybe that they would have had on their radar. Yeah, I think, I think Janice um, probably, uh, Ooh, it's such a, I mean, like, I don't know whose reputation I'm trying to protect here, this fictional evil character, but it is really dark to say that I think that uh, Janice probably uh, perpetuated um, animal abuse in the way that I've always imagined that to be the case, in the way that uh, we know people with uh, psychopathic tendencies or people that uh, have enormous behavioral issues uh, have done in childhood. I mean, there's all these studies, you know, um, if a child is mauling an animal, then... uh, We see it time and time again in case studies of people who then go on uh, to commit particularly heinous crimes. Um, And I think that's the sort of thing that got her parents' attention. Which ties in neatly with her love of taxidermy, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I was actually going to ask about um, if you thought that their decision to have her be a taxidermist might be like a reflection of that part of her past. one thing that is kind of more about like comparing and contrasting um the role of janice um in preparing to speak to you i went back and watched um black klansman um, a film that you had like a, a really prominent role in and you were talking about how janice um she's kind of like um she's very sinister but she also seems very happy and giddy most of the time i was thinking do you do you think there are any parallels between those two characters that you play
1: I do, actually, Um, and what they have in common is, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but what they have in common is that they're played by me, and I am a uh, fat, white, cisgendered woman, and as such, there is a certain level of harmlessness ascribed to me, as a middle-aged fat white woman, cisgendered woman, uh, and I think they both use that assumption of harmlessness to do enormous amounts of harm. Now, I think, I think Janice is um, altogether a much happier person than Connie is, but. Janice is a a solo flyer, whereas Connie deeply feels the need of community. And part of why Connie does the things she does is that, um, and and when I say why she does the things she does, I mean less the actual brutal, heinous things she does, but... um, I mean more the way that she presents as a nice social friendly welcoming person is because community means a great deal to her and she believes that her community is under threat. Uh, she genuinely believes that, uh, Black people are, and brown people and Jewish people are threatening to take her quality of life away. And this is something that has been uh, inculcated in her to the degree that she feels like her life is at risk and she'll do anything to protect it, you know? Whereas Janice, I don't think I don't think Janice ever feels like her life is at risk. Even when it is, you know? Even when she's seconds from dying, she still feels like she is firmly in control of the situation. Except for like the second and a half before she dies. <laughs> it's like the only time she's like Feels like she's not in the driver's seat.
2: Yeah, yeah, that is, I think, an important distinction to make because, like, um, control is a big part of Janice's character and kind of how she always seeks out and um, tries to be the one in control, right?
1: Yeah, I agree, and I just want to say, um, obviously, I, I, I need to say um, that Connie is wrong.
2: Oh yeah, I, I mean, I think that that comes across.
1: <laughs> yeah, and historically, and ob- and and presently. Um, black people have far more to fear than white people from white people than the all the transverse being true um and it is because of people like Connie that black people live in great danger in this nation and I just wanted to be as specific about that as possible
0: and I really appreciate you being specific about that um and especially so you know I, like you, am a cisgendered white woman who is perceived as completely harmless by people. But we have that responsibility to understand our social location and how we fit into anti-racism and, you know, undoing all of these harms and dangers that are around us. So I really appreciate your perspective on that.
1: Thank you. And like, especially now when, uh, I mean... Not especially now. It's been this way throughout history. But I, I think it's um, a very uh, uh, usefully much discussed topic recently about um, not just the complicity of white women in uh, white supremacist power structures, but the ways that we perpetuate that and and uh, white women can weaponize their power. Uh, The sort of trope of their white fragility and of their, uh, the sanctity of their white womanhood uh, by calling the police. um, By, uh, and it was the same in the days of Emmett Till as it is now. Amy Cooper and um, Carolyn Donham are, you know, cut from the same cloth, if you ask me.
0: Thank you. It's, You know, uh, of course, and I'm sure you're seeing it where you are, and we're, of course, seeing in Canada um, this sort of um, revitalizing of Black liberation movements and anti-racist movements and anti-white supremacy work, and these conversations are so useful, Uh, and I'm sure we're going to be having a lot more of them uh, over the coming, well, I mean, days and years. I certainly hope so.
1: Me too, yeah. I don't want it to go away. I think we're finally... Finally, just like starting to su- kind of get somewhere um, while in the middle of everything else melting down. Um, but part of that, like really, to be honest, really does lead back to Mr. Robot. And I know that sounds uh, like too pat of a segue, but like white supremacy and um, white nationalism is upheld by capitalism. And so uh, any real talk about anti-racism has to, of necessity, become anti-capitalist, I think.
0: I think we've talked a lot on our podcast about how all of these movements intersect. Yeah. And so that that was a very elegant segue because I do want to ask you another question about actually being on the Mr. Robot set and what it's like. I think, you know, our listeners are sort of curious about, you know, what the day-to-day experience of creating that show was like. And I wonder if you had a memorable moment from set you would share with us.
1: Oh my gosh. I have so many memorable moments from set. Um, I mean, there are just little things like I will never forget walking through, like from one part of the set, like on the sound stage, Cause some of my stuff was on locations and some of it was on stages. um, But what's wild about the sound stages is that there's several different locations set up on this huge stage. So you'll walk through places that would never be next to each other in life. Um, And I just remember walking through a room and the huge E-court, E, E, the one that's like out in front of the building, you know, the huge tilted E-sculpture it's just like in this room Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i just walked past it i was it was maybe i i don't even know if i'd started shooting yet but i just sort of lost my mind and i remember being like can i touch it and they're like (laughs) yeah you could you can touch it and i was like okay will you take my picture with it And then I went home and couldn't tell anybody. I started telling my mom who's never watched the show, tried watching it, watched my first episode and was like, I think I would need to watch the seasons before to understand this. And I was like, Oh yeah, sorry. Sorry. I tried to tell you everything about it. Cause I couldn't tell my husband and now you feel like you have to watch it, but you don't understand any of it. Sorry, mom. Um, cause I just had to have somebody I could tell, you know? Um, Gosh, there were so many, um, Sam is such a delight and working with Grace, Gracie Gummer is such a great, great scene partner and Carly is so good. They're all so talented and Sam was so gracious that he allowed me and Rami allowed me because it was all of his stuff from, um. From the last episode. Um, I I have an interest in directing. And I asked Sam if I could just sort of sit. Well, I actually, I asked um, Sam's assistant if there was a way that I could just, like, get a chair and sit in the back and watch. You know, just because when you're on set, you're too busy trying to understand what they want you to do and trying to do the thing that they want you to do. You don't really get to just sit and watch and learn other stuff. So I wanted some of that. And I asked if I could just sit and watch. And somehow that got turned into, oh, you're shadowing Sam. And I was like, am I? Okay, that's great. So I, uh, and my voice I'm sure went actually that high. So um, I got to sit Uh, at Video Village where Sam is with the monitor, with Cal Bradstreet, and with, uh, you know, Uh, like the people that are making the show happen um, uh, are all working on it And, and Sam is watching on the monitor, and I got to sit right there and watch him direct and see the scenes where Elliot meets himself, basically. That whole day of all of the scenes of him being at the computer, him walking in, and him being at the computer, uh, all of their interactions, um, the uh, Elliot ending up on the floor, you know, the, all of that like double screen goodness. I got to watch both sides be recorded. And I learned more in like the three days I got to watch. Than about other parts of the process than I have in, you know, gosh, how long have I been doing this? 16 years of being on set as an actor. I mean, I didn't learn much about about acting because I wasn't paying attention to the acting, but I got to see it from the other side. And it was invaluable. It was so cool. And what a great gift to be given, you know.
2: I think that I know those scenes you're talking about where Elliot meets himself, and I remember thinking, wow, how did they ever pull that off? Because it's so flawless, and um, there have been so many other episodes, like um, the, the one that's presented as one take, that have just been such... Really great directing. So I think that Aaron and I have become really big fans of Sam Esmail. Um, we also had like an episode about Homecoming, for example. So um, I'll be looking forward to seeing um, any TV show that that you can show us in the future. Man, he's brilliant. One thing that I was wondering about that is kind of more about um, when Janice was introduced to us. They they have a note yeah. that she um, is an avid podcast listener, which I I also am. So I could tell it. I think they were listening to Dan Carlin. Yeah, and I was wondering, do you do you also listen to podcasts, or kind of what are what are your favorites?
1: Um, you know, I am. Um, I have a couple that I listen to. Um, I'm actually more of a newsletter person. Um, I I've always been. I, I'm always the person that wants to read the article instead of watching the video. I feel like often we break down to. Those types of, like, the internet is divided on, like, whether you want to read the text or you want to hear or see the video. And I'm always the read-the-text person. So, like, for newsletters, I like, um, gosh, I like Eric R. Thomas. I um, I like, oh, my gosh, I am blanking on her name. Um, Word Science is her Twitter Oh, and I know who you mean. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm in love with her. I can't believe I'm blanking on her name. I feel so awful about that because she's the best. Um, she has this great uh, a thing about about watching. Um... It's Samantha Irby. Thank you, thank you, Samantha Irby, who has a book out as does Eric R. Thomas. They're both amazing, uh, but Samantha Irby has a great. A great uh, uh, newsletter that I love, which is all about her. I won't ruin it for you because you'll be so delighted when you see it. But it's all about um, the day-to-day who's on uh, a a very specific uh, semi-reality television show every day. It's amazing. Um, So, uh, but as far as podcasts go, um, I'm a real big fan of... uh, a crew called the Trillbillies. I don't know if you guys know anything about the Trillbillies. Uh,
2: I subscribe to them, actually. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, need to, we'll need to call that out.
1: <laughs> Aren't they the best? I love the Trillbillies. They're, um, they are fantastic. Um, and they, uh, for those of you that don't know the Trillbillies, these are these, uh, these three brilliant Kentucky kids. Who talk about um, class warfare and socialism and uh, the rights of the poor and sort of uh, uh, systemic inequality? Uh, And they're deeply, deeply, deeply funny. they interviewed, uh, I got, I got a shout out on one of the episodes. I was very excited. They interviewed my friend, Sturgill Simpson. And, uh, because I'm friends with Tom Sexton, who's one of the Trillbillies, uh, they ended up talking about Black Klansmen and talking about me for a second, because, uh, Sturgill has also played, uh, a pretty racist character in a film recently. And they were talking a little bit about that, uh, So that was exciting. It's always nice to get called out on a podcast, you know, loving that. Um, Gosh, uh, you know, I have a friend, uh, my friend Brittany does a, does a thing called black nerd problems, but that tends to be more of an Instagram live thing than an actual podcast. Um, And then there are just some classics. I like, uh, I was actually on a, uh, I like a good sci-fi or fiction podcast, um, which is a very small world in comparison to, uh, you know, celebrity podcast or nonfiction podcast, I feel like. Um, And they don't get as much, I think, um, as many column inches. If that's even a viable, like, way to say that, because who... Newspapers are dead, you know, so like I don't know know if we can talk about column inches anymore. They don't get as much coverage, fiction podcasts. But I was in one that I'm very proud of called Steal the Stars, which is by a guy named Mac Rogers, who also did um, two other great uh, sci-fi podcasts. um, And his work in general is pretty stellar, uh, but I play a uh, the head of security at basically if area 50, 51, 52, what is going on with my brain today, um, you know, where the aliens are, uh, if that was run by, like, Jeff Bezos, if that was owned by, like, Jeff Bezos of Amazon instead of owned by the government, Um I basically am the head of security at that. And it's a big old secret. And then I fall in love and we try to steal an alien. It's great. <laughs> that this sounds, sounds on great. Paper. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to download it once we get off this call. <laughs> it's so good. She's so tough. And she, like, unfortunately falls in love, like, right as the story begins. And you're not even allowed to have friends. At this base, like if you, uh, if you are if you fraternize with anyone, even like non romantically, you get like sent to a private prison, basically, and then she straight up falls in love. It's wild.
0: That show sounds so exciting to me. Um, We have we we mentioned um, homecoming. I think we're big fans of that style of because it's all storytelling right? That's a podcast and it's fun to have something a bit different. So I'm sure listeners will want to check that out. Um, so we've, um, you know, through this conversation, we've been talking a little bit about, this is a really, I don't know how to describe it, a sort of volatile and unprecedented and strange time for many of us. And, um, I mean, this is a question more about your, your personal life where you, I think ha- uh, were one of the people who early on, uh, were diagnosed with COVID-19.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah.
0: I wonder if you would tell us a little bit about, you know, what that experience was like.
1: Sure. So, um, I had just come back from with my husband going to see, um, uh, Oh, once again, Sturgill Simpson, uh, I had gone to Pittsburgh with my husband and a friend of mine who flew in from L.A. Um, We all went to Pittsburgh to have a reunion and see Sturgill play a show, uh, a big arena show, because we all met and fell in friend love um, on a TV show in Pittsburgh in 2018. So we do that. And then I come home and uh, I feel terrible, and my husband feels terrible. And then we find out that the day before we left New York for Pittsburgh, we had gone to see Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, uh, which was amazing. And nice. none, of you will, none of you will ever get to see it because it closed because of COVID, with Laurie Metcalf and Rupert Everett and Russell Toby, It was amazing. And this girl whose name, I can't remember, but she was phenomenal playing Honey. Anyway, an usher there had COVID. March 3rd, an usher, when like 500 people had COVID in New York, um, one of them was an usher at our theater. So we think it may that may have been then, um, or we got it at some point during the trip to Pittsburgh, I like to think, and I do think this is probably true, that we probably got it at the show and then probably gave it to Sturgill Simpson and my friend, Josh Baton, um, hanging out on the tour bus, hugging, cheek kissing, lap sitting, being like happy, happy um, friends reunited because then Sturgill got sick like three days after us and we had... Two weeks that were awful. Like there was a point where we thought, I know we probably should go to the emergency room, but I cannot get up to like make it out the door to go to the emergency room. And at that point they were telling people not to go to the emergency room unless you had shortness of breath. And so we were like, okay, we're going to stay here. I happen to have something called a pulse oximeter that tells you, um, just because there's clotting issue, blood clot issues in my family. So I'm always like very nervous about that sort of thing. Um, it tells you what percent of oxygen is getting into your bloodstream. Anything below 94 is like a problem. 95 you're okay you really want it to be between like 96 and 98 99 you're probably hyperventilating Um, I looked at it and it was 88 and I was like okay I think we need to go to the urgent care so he went to the urgent care and they were like oh you have pneumonia that's why you're not oxygenating so they gave me but they were like it's really good you came so they um, gave me antibiotics and then they tested us both for the flu. Neither of us had the flu. And then they tested us for COVID. Um, we were sick two really bad weeks and then probably another three weeks of lessening symptoms. But I have to tell you that we got sick March 10th. It is now July what? I don't even know. Um, that's my life. I have no idea what day it is. It's July 9th, and I still get vertigo every time I lay down. I lie down to go to sleep at night for about 20 to 30 seconds, and we still get knocked out by crazy sudden onset fatigue where everything will be fine, and then one of us will be like, I have to go to bed. I have to go to bed right now, or I'm going to fall asleep in this chair. I'm going to fall asleep standing up at this counter. And then we could sleep for like 18 hours. It's bonkers. And I know that there are people that have longer lasting, worse symptoms than I do, like several people. Like I have a friend, my friend Gina, her heart just races randomly now. You know, I have a friend who's on her, I think, 115th day of being sick and wrote the other day that she was eating broccoli and her hand got tired of holding the fork and then her mouth got too tired to chew after 110 days of this. So like... I have a feeling that there are going to be some really long-term issues with this disease that we don't even know about yet. And that's like once we get like the main problem in hand, which nobody uh, in the government seems to be concerned about, but um, I sure am
2: yeah I, I think that what you've just described that all sounds um so terrible and I imagine that because you were saying it started um in early March that's kind of some that's kind of like around the time when it was beginning to reach the public consciousness so there probably was a lot of uncertainty to be one of the first people um, but to tack on a question there um, specifically because you were talking about um, kind of how the government is handling the crisis um, all of the uh, I guess everybody has been impacted, but um, your industry um, is one of the ones that has been most severely impacted, it would seem. So I was kind of wondering, what did you think um, that governments could do to support um, people who work in the arts during this time?
1: That's a great question. Um, First of all, they can be more proactive about uh, dealing with the actual disease so that at some point, uh, any of us that are left alive can go back to work. I'm certainly not in favor, and no one I know is in favor of opening up too quickly. I mean, I certainly don't think we all need to be in theaters right now. Um, but I just, the, the lack of guidance and sane leadership out of the federal government right now is terrifying especially because in New York and as in a lot of places, the so much of our uh, earning as a state, it's 7.5% of our gross state product is arts and culture. And we, it's one of our biggest exports. I mean, it's one of the few things that America makes still is arts and culture. And um, I actually have a stat right now. There's an organization called Be an Arts Hero that is trying um, to get the Senate to look at uh, an art uh, relief bill for artists, um, sort of like the one that passed, uh, I believe, in England recently. I think it was in England. It was in the UK, definitely. Um, I think it was in England. They passed uh, like a $2 billion relief bill for artists because we are so far away from being able to go back to work. And the added value of what arts and artists and culture adds to New York State alone is $119 billion. We are uh, an $800 billion industry in the United States. And that is, like, the airlines are a drop in the bucket compared to the arts industry. And the airlines get hella bailouts, you know. Uh, all of the people who are directly in the or indirectly in the industry are suffering. And all of our health care is tied to how many hours we work. So not only are we not able to earn, we're not able to keep ourselves healthy and safe if we don't earn. It's all sort of tied together. So I would ask people to encourage uh, the government to create, first of all, to extend uh, the stimulus package, to extend the uh, pandemic unemployment assistance that people have been getting, along with regular unemployment, Uh, And to wear masks, stay home so that we can all come out and celebrate together when this is done. But, like, the virus doesn't care if you feel like you've done enough. It can't be reasoned with. It's not human. It's not a tactic. Stay inside. And when you have to go outside, wear a damn mask, you know? Anyway. (laughs) <laughs> well, so
0: all of this is, I mean, really relevant for me. So I live in a small Canadian theater town, right? So we have seen, I think, 900 people directly in the arts laid off. And there's only 30,000 people in our town. And it touches every business, every business, when all of those folks are laid off, right? Right, exactly. So, you know, it's, it's devastating for people. And I think I wholeheartedly agree. We're all excited to go back to the theater. but. You know, what is it going to take from people in our various governments to make that safe for the workers in the arts and then for people who are
1: patrons who enjoy it? Exactly. Exactly. I'm sorry to hear that your town was so impacted. Um, The nice thing is that, you know, New York has so much community that we, I mean, it's really community and culture are what what we have that makes living in these tiny apartments without backyards worth it. So like, we're all, you know, I, I do think the communities are working together, but that's not going to get us very far by ourselves.
0: I think um, you've hit on something key there where, you know, um, theater is a collective art and it is about community and it reaches pretty far. And one thing I was curious to ask you, I think you got
1: your start on um, stage theater, right? I did. I did actually, well, kind of, sort of. Um, I like I did children's theater in Little Rock, Arkansas, where I grew up. And then um, I went to uh, a school, a theater school after college. I went to Hendrix College um, and then went to the Neighborhood Playhouse School of the Theater. Uh, after getting a theater major at Hendrix. Um, and But my first job was a Law & Order, but I got it because of my showcase at the Neighborhood Playhouse. Um, I had five lines on a Law and & Order, and then that led to a show called Rescue Me, where I, uh, because it was the same director, uh, and I ended up getting to do six episodes there but I think, I, I think it could have been utterly conceivable that it all just stalled out there if I hadn't as um, uh, what they call a hiatus project, which is, which is like an awfully orderly way to view your life. Like, oh, I'll just line up this thing for when I'm not working and do even more work, which is not how I've ever been able to live, frankly. <laughs> it's always like, oh, I got the job. Great. Um, but I had a hiatus project, which was Neil LeBute's play Fat Pig um, that I was in with uh, the rest of the cast was Jeremy Piven, Carrie Russell and Andrew McCarthy. And I was like. Ten months out of acting school. It was my third actual paid acting job, so like, no pressure there. Um, I'm kidding. It was all the pressure, <laughs> uh, but I felt really grateful to get to do it, and it um, it launched me as much as like a little fat character actress from Arkansas can be launched in the New York scene, you know, um, it was really exciting. It was a very hot play at the time. And, um, you know, I got on the cover of the New York post and I got nice reviews and I, uh, won a theater world award and I was nominated for some other awards and the play was nominated for a lot of awards. So yeah, uh, it was, um, sort of a, a breakout moment, I guess, as much as, it's funny, I sort of don't really ascribe to the idea of breakout moments, but I do think that, like, I have been lucky. um, Sometimes you have, like, one moment in a career or two moments in a career, and I've been very lucky to be able to, over the past 16 years, string sort of several moments together, um, and that's really all you can hope for. In a business like this, I think, is to get to continue to work and every now and again um, keep the work as steady as you can, and then something pops into like the larger zeitgeist from time to time.
2: Yeah, I think I see what you mean there. And um, it's interesting to hear about some of those earlier projects because um, I, I, for example, wasn't aware of that, but I feel like I'm going to need to check it out now. Another thing. Um, uh, a movie of um a movie that I, I like to watch a while ago was um compliance, which I only found out when I was researching um for this that you were you were in that too. So there are all kinds of things out there that I'm gonna need to check out. And um more recently, um I think that earlier in the quarantine, not really a hiatus project, but like a quarantine project, um you were part of something called um viral monologues. And I was wondering if you could describe that.
1: Oh yeah, I was so sick when I did that, which is hilarious. Um, That is uh, actually um, an offshoot of something called the 24-hour plays, which is something I've been a part of for, gosh, I'd say 15 years at this point. I've got to be 15 years. Um, But yeah, they do this thing where you you all show up the writers, the directors, and the actors at like 10, 30, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, and you're like, okay, um, this, and you bring a prop, and you say your name and say, you know, something you've always wanted to do on stage, something you've never gotten to do on stage, yada, yada, and you throw your prop in the middle of the circle, and then you go away, and the writers spend the overnight writing plays like they pick their actors every they get either get assigned or somehow pick uh their actors and then they write a play for us over the overnight and then we show up in the morning uh and then we get like 10 hours to rehearse it and learn the lines and block it and do the whole thing and then we go on stage at 8 p.m and you do the play it's wild um you know uh And I have always been such a big fan of that process. Uh, And they had one that they were going to do, and then COVID shut them down. Obviously, we can't have folks in theaters. So they said, well, let's just do it like this. Let's uh, Let's pair up writers and actors, and we'll have the writers write a monologue for the actor, and then the actor can record it in their home and send it in within a day, and then we'll put it on the web. And that's how Viral Monologues was born. And they have had so many iterations of it by now, and they are stellar. Like, they're just really phenomenal. I'm very proud to have been, one, uh, been in the first one, but there are so many of them now by such big stars um, who are just doing really tremendous work. And that's how I became part of that, yeah.
0: Well, wow. you have worked on such a wide variety of really interesting projects. And I think I think we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you just one more Mr. Robot question. Uh, and we're coming to the end of our interview. Um, but before we started the tape, uh, which that's probably another thing that we can't say anymore um, because there's no, tape. Right? Uh, <laughs> but uh, you mentioned that you had a story from your first day on set uh, with Martin Wallstrom, who's been a great friend of our show. And I wondered if you would share that with our listeners.
1: Oh my gosh. Yes. It's so dumb. I, I, before we went live, I uh, was like, Oh, I have a funny story. And I was like, actually, it's probably not even that funny. It's just incredibly cringy Uh, So we did a table read, right, uh, of all the episodes. And it was my first time meeting anyone in the show that wasn't Sam. Sam was at my audition. um, And uh, the table read was the first thing that was very exciting. uh, And I was very nervous. And so we go and... They didn't let us hear um, all of the episodes. Like, we didn't know anything about 407. If you weren't in 407, you were not welcome at the reading for 407. Right? There were certain things, like, they didn't want you to know what was up with Elliot, his dad, and, like, all this sort of stuff. That was, um, they were very aware of not wanting spoilers. But we read through the rest of the season, And Martin and I um, were done after episode eight. Like we read through to eight and then we took a break. Right. And so I'm done at eight and Martin was done before eight. And so we're like, I guess we'll go home. And they were like, do you want to stay? And I was like, no, I want to actually be surprised when I see what happens in the show. And Martin was like, me too. Uh, which is hilarious because I didn't understand anything about what was going on that day where I shadowed Sam and watched Elliot talking to himself. I did not know. None of that made any sense to me. Um, But so Martin um, and I are both calling cars and his car comes first. And for some reason, my internet wasn't working well and I couldn't get a lift and or an Uber, and he was like, do you want to hop in my car, and you, you can just, it'll take you home after it takes me home. And I was like, sure. And so, then we get to his place, and it's not working, and I was like, oh, it's fine. You know what? Just let the car go. I'll get a car from here. It's not a big deal. The internet is better here, I bet. I can get a car. Right. So, um... He leaves, right? And I get out of the cab, out of the lift, and the lift drives off with my phone in it. So now I am stuck outside of Martin Wallstrom's building without Martin and no way of leaving, right? So, ugh. So then I get in, I find, I finally, after like 30 minutes, flag down a yellow cab. And I get in the yellow cab and I convince the yellow cab to call my husband. So my husband can then get on my computer, look up my Lyft account, right? I don't even remember how this worked. We basically had to call Martin. We had to get Martin's number from production and then call Martin and make Martin call the lift. This is a man I met literally this morning who I've been a (laughs) huge fan of for years. And now Martin is trying to like hang out at home in his few hours off. And I'm bugging him to contact his Lyft driver so that the Lyft driver can bring my phone back to Martin, and then Martin has to give me my phone. So I still owe him, like, a fruit basket or something. (laughs) But it was just like... You know, it was enough that, like, he gave me the ride. Like, how generous is that? And then I just have to, like, insinuate myself into all aspects of his life for, like, the next two days in this race to get my phone back. So Mm -hmm. stupid. I felt so stupid. Anyway, see? It's cringy. It's not particularly funny. It's just kind of embarrassing. Well, and these
0: things always happen when we least want them to, right? Right, so of we all the time. For you.
1: Thank you, I appreciate that, Aaron.
0: Now we just have a couple uh, last questions before uh, sure. we wrap up with you. So, Great. you have played so many different kinds of roles in so many different kinds of productions. Does one stand out in your memory as a
1: favorite? Oh gosh, no. Um, <laughs> I know that's terrible. They're all really. They're. I mean they're great for different reasons you know um robot was the first time that I got to join a show that I was obsessed with you know like that I had watched for years and wanted to be on for years and had actually auditioned to be on before I auditioned to play Dominique depiro and that audition was awful I will tell you I was I was terrible as her. Allison Wright has a much better story about auditioning to play Dominique DePiro. Allison Wright, who played Martha on The Americans, if you were, uh, she's a phenomenal actor. Yes, yes, she's uh, she's as great of a person as she is an actor. She's so wonderful. She has a hilarious story about auditioning to play Dom and it being bad. Mine was just like just bad like I just couldn't figure out how to make those words come out of my mouth in a way that sounded at all natural Um, and then I remember watching Grace do it and being like oh oh, that's who she is right okay Okay. now it makes sense I never would have been able to do that okay well I guess I blew my shot to be on that show and then uh, Janice came around and that was a perfect fit weirdly (laughs) um like, uh, the show I did, One Dollar, was really special to me in Pittsburgh because um, I made so many friends. Um, I really loved my character, who uh, Terry Mitchell, who was the only woman in the steel mill, um, which a lot of the action took place. Uh, a divorced mom raising uh, a nine-year-old kid. Uh, I just really loved her. Um, I loved... I loved playing Connie and Black Klansman. Um, I don't love Connie uh, at all. She's garbage. Uh, but I felt like it was uh, an enormously, uh, it was an enormous honor to be entrusted with her. Um, and I feel like it's really, uh, I really value playing white supremacists as uncomfortable as I find it because I know it is um, a sign of not having, uh, finally, having less white-centered stories, um, and having more stories that are centered around experiences that are not white. Um, and so, I I feel very proud of that work. You know, um, I like them all for different things, basically.
0: Now, do you have a role that you've always wanted to play?
1: I mean, you're going to laugh. I uh, I do. I mean, I have theater roles I've always wanted to play, for sure. I've always wanted to play Josie from Moon for the Misbegotten. Um, I've always wanted to play Martha in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I've always wanted to play Beatrice in Much Ado. Um, but it's funny. My friend is doing a thing uh, on Twitch where you get to play a role you've always wanted to play but can't because you're the wrong age or the wrong type or the wrong gender or whatever and she was like if you could play any part that you know right now without those constructs that those constraints on you what role would you pick and i thought about it for several days and i want to play tony soprano that's who and I want to play. what
0: speaks to you about Tony Soprano?
1: Um, I am really interested in um, someone who is capable of such extremes and in some ways uh, is only... I don't know. I'm sort of bullshitting because I can't really explain um, what draws him to me. He's an incredibly vulnerable character. He has an enormous amount of power, but often feels powerless and thinks that other people are to blame for things that go wrong in his life. But there's also... uh, a drive to be known and be seen and be understood that he has that I feel like the other that distinguishes him from his peers in that show. That um, it's not just enough to have the marriage and the guma and the relationship and the business and the power. He There's an unrest in him that speaks to the unrest in me about needing understanding on a deeper level. And I think that he deals with that in a way that um, is often very traditional and very um, what is viewed as traditionally masculine behavior. Whereas I deal with those issues uh, in my life and in characters that I play in a very, I think, traditional feminine manner. And I think maybe, I'm just sort of like talking about this, thinking about this as I speak, which is a really great idea for something that's being recorded. But um, anyway, uh, I think that I'm interested in exploring those ideas with those, with the trappings of femininity removed and replaced with um, a whole other set of constraints. Does that make sense? Absolutely.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think um, part of it is just that I don't think Aaron and I have seen The Sopranos, which is a crime, I'm sure. But it's uh, just a little bit of backstory that helps, uh, helps us understand it. Right. Right.
1: <laughs> sure. Sure. It's, I mean, it's interesting. He's capable of tenderness and fury and childishness and deep understanding and complete lack of understanding in the same two-minute scene. It's wild. Um, But, yeah, I think he's just one of the great American – I think he's one of the great modern American characters. And women don't get to play that. You know, that, that mob boss searching for deeper understanding. And I just think that would be a really neat thing to explore. I would watch that reboot. Thanks, dude. I appreciate it.
2: First off, Ashley, uh, thank you so much for joining us. I feel like if I had the chance, I would probably talk to you for another hour or two before I lost track of the time. So just to keep check of that.
1: Oh, thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Devlin. Yeah, yeah.
2: So, if um, if our listeners also wanted to um, read a bit more about you or maybe follow your work, um, where could they find you on the internet?
1: Oh my gosh, I'm all over this great internet. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Ashley Atkinson, A S H L I E. It's got a lie at the end, uh, Ashley Atkinson. Uh, and then I am on Instagram at Ashley underscore Atkinson. Um, And I'm also on the Facebook um, as me. There's like a fan page and there's a me page. So um, join the fan page too if you're going to try and friend me in life without me knowing you. At least like, give me the like on the fan page too. Be a good sport. You know what I'm saying? We'll
2: make sure to share that with the episode. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> thank you
0: um Ashley, you've been so generous with your time and your thoughts, and we are so grateful to have had you here on the show today. um. So on behalf of uh, us and our listeners, thank you so much to everyone out there on the interwebs who's listening to this episode. Thank you for continuing to listen and support our our podcast, Mr. Rewatch. We are recording today uh, in three separate locations because we're social distancing um, between Canada and the U.S. Follow us on Twitter, Mr. Underscore Rewatch, for quarantine content. Thank you so much for listening. Bonsoir.